Welcome to A Happy Place. This is the Live Happy Now podcast. Hello, I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Glad you are making us a part of your week, wherever you are in the world. Also want to thank our partner, Live Happy Magazine. Uh, The new issue is available now. Jillian Michaels on the front. All kinds of great information in there for you. We will have more on that coming up in just a moment. Want to thank our other partner, Life Reimagined. Their website, lifereimagined.org slash happy. It's got all kinds of things for you to try out as you make that journey toward your peak happiness as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Well, find out more at lifereimagined.org slash happy. And we are joined, as always, by our Live Happy co-founder, COO, and editorial director, Deborah Heiss. And we're talking in this episode of the series about overcoming chronic insomnia. And if you read the article, Shelley Levitt, our editor-at-large, uh, was the, the subject of this particular one. What was she dealing with that, that caused her to be such a perfect candidate for this? Well, when we started talking about the 90 Days to a Happier You piece um, several months ago, Shelley was really the first person to uh, volunteer. And she said, look, I never sleep I, I all night. I have a lot of trouble sleeping at night. And, you know, we started looking at it and we did a little bit of research. And that's a very, very common problem. Mm-hmm. So she just put herself out there and said, this is something I'd really like to do. Um, but also, you know, Shelley Shelley's largely responsible for pulling the entire 90 Days to a Happier You piece together. So... Uh, giving her a shout out there. It was a great, great um, article. And I think this series of podcasts is wonderful. Uh, and so, you know, let's learn a little bit more about um, how to sleep better, because I think it's something a lot of us can can benefit from. Oh, absolutely. Live Happy Science editor Paula Phelps had this conversation with Michael Bruce, who's a clinical psychologist and both a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the Academy of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And it, this does continue to, to gain momentum. We're more of a, a sleep-deprived society, and he's become a recognized leader in this space. Yeah, you know, one of the main things about sleep is how much it actually impacts your mood and your ability to perform. And so really focusing on this is is just something that really seemed appropriate for Live Happy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think Michael was excited about it, too. He's on a mission to develop innovative education and communication programs. Well, Dr. Bruce, I'm so glad that you're going to talk with us today because sleep is such a huge important topic. We know that sleep is important, but we seem to have developed this mindset that it's it's almost a badge of honor to be sleep deprived. People often talk about, I'm so tired, I didn't get enough sleep. Where did we get this mindset that it's, that it's okay to run around on just a few hours of sleep? Well, I think it primarily started with um, the invention of the light bulb. Um, you know, when Thomas Edison eventually figured it out, all of a sudden we could now work and, you know, the idea of being able to work instead of sleep uh, it really kind of took over. Uh, I also think with the invention of overtime, where people get paid twice as much for working extra hours, also had a lot to do with it. And, you know, when you go into an industrial society where, you know, the dollar turns out to, you know, drive a tremendous amount of decision-making, uh, sleep gets pushed to the back. And um, the, the other issue I think that's important to realize is that the sleepier you get, the more the, your brain tells you that you're okay. And so that's really? a protective mechanism. Yeah, that's a protective mechanism by the brain um, because if, if, you're, if you're up, you must be up for a reason, and there must be some survival aspect to it. And if there's a survival aspect to it, then you, your brain doesn't want you to feel tired and say, I want to take a nap because there's a saber-toothed tiger, you know, running, running behind you. So what you want to do is you want, you want your brain to tell you that it's okay to sleep, and it really just doesn't function that way until you reach a point of almost total exhaustion where there's an overwhelming 
feeling of sleepiness, and that's when people end up taking naps in the afternoon or, God forbid, falling asleep while driving. So it, it really is a culmination of kind of nature and nurture that seems to have kind of driven us to a society of sleep-deprived people. And, you know, we're not necessarily the only folks out there that are, are like that. Um, you know, when you look in other countries, there are other countries where people have even less sleep than, for example, here in the United States. Well, it's interesting because we, we wouldn't dream of going hours and hours and hours without feeding ourselves, but we'll push ourselves to work without sleep, and sleep is just as important as food and water and all these other things that we do for our bodies. So what makes us think that it's okay to not sleep? Well, because we don't feel the effects immediately. You know, if you don't eat for a day, you're hungry. But if you don't sleep for a day, you might be a little tired, but you can still function. And so I think the immediacy of the effects of deprivation of sleep are slow. Um, and also, by the way, we have this one substance that seems to overcome all this. It's called caffeine. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a reason why there's a Starbucks on every corner, um, because people use and abuse caffeine uh, to help thwart this feeling of sleepiness. Um, caffeine is considered to be the most abused drug in the world, and, and there's good reason for it. Well, can you tell us some of the problems that do come from not getting enough sleep? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, sleep affects every organ system and every disease state. So there isn't a part of your body or a time in your life where sleep can't make you do something better. You know, I always tell people, you know, everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep, but the opposite is, is equally as true. Is everything you do, you do worse without a good night's sleep. Um, we know that emotions are affected by sleep. We know reaction time is affected by sleep. Your physical abilities are affected by sleep. Your ability to think clearly is affected by sleep. There's, there's literally almost nothing you can do that isn't affected by sleep. And it also affects us physically. It affects our weight. It affects so many yep. operations within the body. Can you talk about that from a health standpoint of what sure. it does to us physically? So when you look at, for example, weight loss, you know, we're a society that now is reaching levels of obesity that are catastrophic. Um, we're reaching levels of being overweight that are tremendous. And um, I would argue that a component of that has to do with sleep deprivation. You know, right now, if you, if you deprive yourself of sleep, several things happen to you on a biologic level. Number one, your metabolism slows down. The reason your metabolism slows down is to conserve resources in your body because your body is saying, well, there must be a reason that I'm awake, um, so I'm going to conserve my resources because I don't know if I need to run or hide or hunt or whatever it is I may need to do. So your metabolism slows down. The other thing that happens is your cortisol level raises, which increases your appetite, again, to, to make you want to eat and bring resources into your body. So now you've got a situation, you're sleep-deprived, where you've got a high appetite and low metabolism. But it doesn't stop there. It actually gets even worse. When you look on it at a hormonal level, there are two hormones. One is called ghrelin, which tells you to eat. That increases by 20%. And then one is called leptin, which is your stop hormone, which tells you to stop eating, and that decreases by 15%. So if you look at it, you, you've been up for, I don't know, let's say 20 hours. You only get four hours of sleep one night. Your appetite is high. Your drive for food is high. That's called hunger. Um, your satiation is low, and your metabolism is low. I mean, it can't get much worse than a, a recipe, <laughs> you know, like that. That's really the perfect storm for weight gain. 
Exactly. And then you're probably going to be too tired to go exercise and, and burn off some of those extra calories you've consumed. Well, and the other thing that's kind of interesting is there was a great study at the University of Chicago that looked at food choice um, with, um, with sleep deprivation. And what they found was, in fact, that people choose foods that are higher in carbohydrate and higher in fats the more sleep-deprived they are. And we think that has to do with serotonin levels. Because your cortisol is high, it's making your body stressed out. And so your body naturally craves the food that will elevate serotonin to calm you down. And that turns out to be high-carbohydrate, high-fat food. Interesting. And then what about our brains? What's it doing to us mentally and emotionally when we're walking around like zombies? Well, you know, at the end of the day, you, being a zombie, um, you know, you're more emotional. Um, you re- Actually, there's data now show that you react more emotionally to different things. Um, you're not just angry at something. You are more angry. You're not just annoyed. You're more annoyed. You're not just depressed. You're more depressed. Um, so there's, there's a tremendous amount of um, emotional content that gets misconceived um, and misattributed the sleepier you are. So maybe if you want to get along with your coworkers better, maybe you just need to take a nap. Is that going to be well, the case? Absolutely, well, it depends. If, you, if you've only gotten four hours of sleep a night, I would say don't go to work. I would say <laughs> call in sick and, you know, take a strategic nap somewhere around, I don't know, 12, 31 o'clock for about 90 minutes because that's a full sleep cycle. Uh, and then don't sleep any later or any longer because you'll affect your ability to fall asleep that evening, then go to bed at your normal time, and uh, that's how you catch up. And uh, because your performance is going to be detrimental. It's not, it's not going to be what you think it should be. And what about with digital devices? What role have you seen digital devices play in contributing to our sleep deprivation? Well, you know, I think the blue light that is emitted from digital devices appears to stop the production of melatonin. So remember, melatonin is that key that starts the engine for sleep. It's, um, it's part of the process of the whole, of the whole sleep process, and, um, and it's required. And blue light actually sends a signal to about 30,000 cells in your eyeball called melanopsin cells. And these cells send a signal to your pineal gland that says, hey, stop producing melatonin. You've got to remember, melatonin is a vampire hormone. It only comes out in darkness. So when you have an electronic device, it actually basically tells your brain it's morning. Now, the caveat here usually is television. You know, a television, while it does emit that blue light, it's all the way across the room. So there's a proximity issue here. You know, if you've got a digital device, it's pretty close to your face, um, whether it's a tablet or a phone or a computer, and that's where you're really getting a lot of that, a lot of that light. The other thing to remember is, is that most of the time, if you're looking at something, there's an emotional content to it. You know, if I'm watching, a, you know, a rerun of Seinfeld that I've seen six times, I'm pretty, I'm not that emotionally invested. But if I'm reading email or trying to get my high score on Candy Crush, then, uh, you know, it's going to have an effect on my ability to sleep. And, and what about these blue light filters? Is that enough to offset what's being emitted? I know some people who put that on their phone or their tablets so they, don't, they feel less guilty about checking their emails at, at bedtime. I think it only solves part of the problem. Um, it helps with the blue light aspect. It doesn't help with the engagement aspect. You know, okay. sleep is not an on-off switch. It's more like slowly pulling your foot off the gas and slowly putting your foot on the brake. 
there's a process that has to occur, and you have to allow your body the opportunity to have that process. The average person, it takes them 20 to 25 minutes to fall asleep. That's average. That's good. You know, if you're falling asleep in under five minutes, that's a sign that you're sleep deprived. That's not a good sign. Um, that doesn't mean that you're a great sleeper. It means you're so exhausted that by the time your head hits the pillow, you're out. So I would argue that by using those, those filters, which are helpful, and I've used them before, and I've recommended them to patients, that, um, in fact, it only solves part of the problem. Okay. So, so what should we be doing during that 20 to 30 minutes that it takes us to fall asleep? You know, you can do a lot of different things. Uh, meditation, relaxation, prayer, um, you know, just kind of relaxing your brain. What you don't want to do is you don't want to have something with a large emotional content to it. You don't want to have a big discussion about life with your bed partner in the dark at night. Um, all that does is raise your level of anxiety, which prevents you from being able to fall asleep. Um, you should be lying in a recumbent position, um, either on your back or your side, or I guess your stomach, um, and you should really be focusing in on your breathing, um, making sure that you've got a nice, big, deep breath in, deep breath out, uh, and just relaxing each part of your body, allowing yourself to get to the physiological level to enter into sleep. And we've talked a lot about what happens to us if we don't get enough sleep. So can we talk a little bit about the benefits that we gain when we do start sleeping properly and getting enough sleep? Well, you know, the benefits are tremendous. I mean, number one, we start to see that if you're in a weight loss program, you start to be able to lose weight. Um, aesthetically speaking, you just look better the more sleep you have. I mean, you don't have big puffy eyes. You don't have dark circles, red eyes, pale skin, things like that. So you look better with sleep. Um, you function cognitively better with sleep. You think quicker. You're able to, you're able to make better decisions, better associations, solve problems. Um, it, it, again, it's, it's really pretty amazing. The more sleep you get, the better off you are. But, you know, we've really been talking about sleep from a quantity perspective, not from a quality perspective. And those are two very different things. You know, when we talk about sleep, most people think about minutes or hours. Um, I, I can argue the point that you could get six and a half hours of sleep, but if it was really high quality, it's probably enough. Really? So how do you know... Excuse me, how do you know if you are getting enough sleep? Well, that's a personal individual choice. Um, you know, I've been a six-and-a-half-hour sleeper almost my whole life, but my wife needs eight-and-a-half. Uh, and um, that's one of the things that she knows her body needs. So, um, again, looking at quantity, we know that that works well for us. Um, quality sleep can be affected by numerous things, anything from a sleep disorder like apnea or narcolepsy or restless leg syndrome, um, to uh, environmental factors like light and sound and caffeine, exercise, uh, an old mattress, uh, you know, a non-supportive pillow, things like that. And so they should, should people just kind of take inventory of what's going on in their bedroom or how do they set it up so that they are getting the highest quality sleep that they can? Well, you know, one of the things, I actually have an e-book available for people um, where they can download it for free, uh, which talks about the 10 things that great sleepers do. Uh, it's available at uh, secretstosleepsuccess.com forward slash GS for great sleep. And um, it's got 10 different things that people can do. But, you know, the first thing people need to do is educate themselves about what is sleep. Uh, 
Another thing that a lot of great sleepers do is have a consistency to their schedule. Going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time are probably the biggest, most critical factors in getting not only good quantity sleep, but also good quality sleep. Um, once your brain knows what time it's supposed to go to sleep and what time it's supposed to wake up, Mother Nature kind of takes over and will allow for an increase in overall quality sleep. But that also includes the weekends. You know, if you're a 6.30 wake-up person during the week, you need to be a 6.30 wake-up person on the weekend. And that's a tough thing for most of us because we kind of cheat a little, like don't get quite enough sleep every night, and then by the weekend it's like that's our time to catch up. Well, the truth of the matter is, is you don't actually catch up. That's a fallacy. Um, so let's say that normally you wake up at 6.30 and on the weekends you sleep until 8.30. Right, so you get an extra two hours. All that does is that shifts your circadian clock, your internal biological clock, and now your brain doesn't want to wake up until 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and then again on Monday morning, which makes it all the more difficult for you to be able to wake up. You don't catch up on sleep by sleeping in. You catch up on sleep by going to bed at the right time. Okay. And, and so once you start doing that, then you'll start noticing – big gains in how you feel, how you look, and your overall physical and mental health. Is that correct? No question about it. Now, let me ask you, it, it, for so many people, getting adequate sleep just doesn't seem possible. Is there At what point does not getting enough sleep become insomnia? What is that, the difference? Ah, great between question, us? great question. So what I call it is the rule of threes, right? And so if it takes you longer than 30 minutes to fall asleep, or you wake up more than three times a night, okay, for more than three nights a week, for more than three weeks at a time, you've got insomnia. And what can you do about it? Well, there's a lot of different things that you can do about it. The first thing you have to figure out is why do you have the insomnia? You know, not all insomnia is kind of created equal. There are many different types. There's the I can't fall asleep, I can't stay asleep, I wake up too early. There's insomnia associated with depression, with anxiety, with pain. So there's lots of different reasons. So the first thing you have to do is identify what's the potential root cause for my insomnia. Once you've identified that, then the, the treatment path is going to be different for different people, depending upon the cause. Since probably 75% of insomnia is related to anxiety, let's choose that one to talk about. One of the things that I've instituted with many of my patients is something I call the power down hour. So you take one hour before lights out. So let's say that your lights out time will consistently be um, 11.30 because you're going to get up at 6.30, which will give you seven hours of sleep. So 20, well, let's say an hour before 11.30. So at 10.30, you'll take 20 minutes to do things you just have to do before the next day. So get your briefcase together, get the kids' backpacks together, find shoes, whatever it is that happens to be on, going on in your home. Those are the things that go on in my home. Um, then 20 minutes for hygiene, and then 20 minutes for some form of relaxation, meditation, spirituality, whatever you want to do um, to help calm you down. That allows you to enter into sleep very quickly and very deeply in order to get the sleep you're looking for. And a lot of times when people start having trouble sleeping, they'll reach for over-the-counter medications. They'll do yep. some Tylenol PM or things like that. Is that really solving the problem or is it contributing to it? Depends on the problem. So as an example, if you have insomnia secondary to pain, then that might not be a bad option. 
right? Because we know that people who have a lot of aches and pains, whether it's from a pain syndrome, whether it's from injuries or things like that, if you don't treat both the pain and the sleep at the same time, it doesn't work very well. Um, but let's say that you don't have that issue of pain, but you're just taking one of these, you know, PM analgesics for the, the PM portion. Well, all that is is Benadryl. Um, and Benadryl, while it works, it's not a long-term solution. Um, you know, if you're taking something, an over-the-counter sleep aid, every night for probably more than a couple of weeks, um, that's a bigger issue. I, I would suggest talking with a sleep specialist at that point. Well, what about melatonin? Can you talk about that and how, what that is and how we can use that as a sleep mm -hmm. aid? So melatonin is a sleep regulator, not a sleep initiator. Melatonin doesn't, isn't a sleeping pill. Melatonin helps reset your circadian rhythm or your biological clock. 90% of people have a functioning biological clock and don't require melatonin. Also, melatonin is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. It's not a mineral. It's not an herb. It is a hormone. So actively putting a hormone into your system on a regular basis is a bad idea. 95% of the melatonin that's currently sold is sold in an overdosage format. And most people take it like a sleeping pill right before bed. The appropriate dose of melatonin is probably somewhere between a half and one milligram, and it should be taken approximately 90 minutes before bed. Another caveat is most people don't know this, but at high dosages, melatonin is actually a contraceptive. So when you have a child who isn't sleeping well, the last thing you want to do is to introduce melatonin into a young reproductive system because we have no idea what the long-term consequences might be. So is melatonin appropriate for jet lag? Sure. Is melatonin appropriate to be used on occasion? Absolutely. Um, is melatonin a sleeping pill? No way. That's interesting because it's often marketed very differently, so that's great information for us to know. And and at what point should people decide to seek treatment for getting not getting enough sleep? Because obviously well, you're giving us some insight that mm -hmm. that they're not going to get just uh, Googling it. Right. Well, you know, the thing to remember is, is you know, get, make yourself a consistent sleep schedule first. Cut out caffeine by 2 o'clock. Stop exercising four hours before bed. Um, you know, uh, do the basics. Uh, making sure your room is dark, quiet, and cool. Do the basics first. And if none of those work for you, then it's probably time to contact a professional. And how do you find someone who's in line with what, who's going to be a good sleep professional? How do you find oh, them? Oh, gosh. That's not an easy task. Um, Doesn't sound most, like it would be. <laughs> yeah. Most sleep doctors um, are actually more apnea specialists and narcolepsy specialists than they are insomnia specialists. Uh, what I oftentimes recommend people to do is if they go to sleepcenters.org, uh, they can punch in their zip code and it will tell them about an accredited sleep center in their town or in their city. And then from there, they can um, ask them if they have a referral to a psychologist or psychiatrist or somebody who's an insomnia specialist because usually that, that's a great place to kind of start in your local community. Terrific. So for everyone who's listening today, what is the number one thing that they should do today so that they can get a better night's sleep tonight? 
I would say, number one, go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time every single day. Number two, stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Number three, you want to stop alcohol approximately three hours before bed. Number four, I would say, is to stop exercise approximately four hours before lights out. And number five is to get 15 minutes of sunlight every single morning because that helps reset your circadian clock. For more information on the 90 days to a happier you, you can check out the latest issue of Live Happy Magazine. It is on newsstands now, as well as the digital edition, which is available to you in the Apple App Store and on the Google Play Store. If there's anything you'd like to add to the discussion, feel free to do so. Reach out to us on Twitter at LiveHappy, Facebook.com slash LiveHappy, or on Instagram by searching My Live Happy. You can also send us an email, podcast at LiveHappy.com. For everyone at the Live Happy Now podcast, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and remember to always live happy. <laughs>